Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to Yale Emergency Medicine Podcast. Today's topic is bruising characteristics in child abuse. Today we have two distinguished guests, Dr. Mary Clyde Pierce, Professor of Pediatrics, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, Lori Children's Hospital of Chicago. She is also a pediatric emergency medicine attending. She's done extensive publications and presentations on bruising characteristics in child abuse. And we also have Dr. Andy Asnes, Yale University. She is a child abuse doctor, Dr. Leventhal. Unfortunately, Dr. Leventhal was not able to be here with us today, but we'll get him on another podcast in the future. She is with the DART team. DART stands for Detection, Assessment, Referral, and Treatment Team. It is the child abuse team of Yale. Yale's child abuse team has just celebrated its 50 years of service. She is also an associate professor of pediatrics at Yale. Welcome to the both of you. I'm very excited about this uh, talk. Let's begin. So, Dr. Pierce. Yes. So, what inspires you to do all this work? Uh, being in the emergency department, um, I'm always having to make the decision um, at the beginning, like, is this abuse or is this not? Does this make sense? Does this make not? And you care so much about your families and about those children and trying to get the decisions and the thinking correctly that um, we just need better evidence to help us from the beginning make the best decision possible. And that's what motivates me. Okay, great. And Andy, what motivates you or inspires you to do this work? Well, I think it's... The necessity of making good decisions, as Mary Clyde has said, I think that um, you can't say this about every form of medicine, but our decision-making really can save children's lives, um, and I believe that that happens regularly. Similarly, we can have a negative impact on families' lives when we make the wrong decision and put them through needless um, scrutiny and anxiety. So I am uh, inspired to do better work by the kind of objective data that Mary Clyde has gathered and continues to gather as a researcher, because I know it's going to help me uh, rely on the right information to make the right decision that hopefully will save the children that need my help and spare those families and children that don't from spending too much time with me when they don't need me. All right, great. So let's start kind of at the beginning of how to get it right. And one big piece of that is taking a history. Dr. Pierce, can you go over some of the key components of taking a good history on uh, such a patient? Yes. Um, some of the best work that's uh, on how to take a good history is actually written by John Leventhal. Uh, he's been such an insp inspiration uh, for me. Has been has a huge impact on the whole entire field of child abuse, I have to say, just to take a moment to say that. Um, I don't think there's anybody that's had a bigger impact, in my opinion, in the entire field in a positive wow. way. And uh, he's yeah. completely shaped um, my um, thinking and how to actually carefully and compassionately and empathetically understand and take histories and just to uh, connect with families so you can understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, some of the best history taking I also learned was uh, not only from John Leventhal, but also from uh, Gina Bertacci and uh, the biomechanical engineers that I collaborate with. Okay. We would, um, when we started doing research together to try to understand the difference between accident and abuse of physical injuries, um, they had me do a series of questions in our clinical research to try to, so we could actually take that data back to our lab and recreate it. 
Um, so I had to ask very careful questions about where the position that the child was in before they fell, what were the dynamics of the fall, how'd they land, what was the substance that they fell onto or fell from. All of these little tiny data uh, points matter. And so as I began to do that for research purposes, um, I began to do that in my clinical practice as well. And it was an interesting thing that uh, happened is that when families have seen their child fall or have had an accident, they remember the details with an amazing clarity. Mm -hmm. uh, people that are actually making up a story or falsely uh, saying something happened to cover up that they hurt the child often yeah. falter when it comes to actually providing those little tiny movie details. And so one of the things that I've found to be really helpful so I just ask the family when I'm taking history is, can you just give me a movie of what happened? So that where I don't feed them the answers, I don't, I always say you need to take the history, not make the history. And yeah. so have them just tell me what happened. And it's amazing because families don't know what little details are going to matter to you, but they remember them and they're happy to tell you and they can tell you with, with amazing detail. Great. Yeah. And I think that's great for our frontline providers to know is just kind of ask that question. Can you provide us with the idea about a movie that how you would describe this uh, this type of a fall. And, you know, often we'll ask, you know, what happened? And they try to tell us what happened. Then you find out that well, they actually weren't even there. They were in another room or not in the physical building. Right. So that, I think that's great for our frontline folks. And um, Andy, how about you? When you're taking a history, what are other key components of history are you focusing on? Well, I do like to know who else might have witnessed an event. I think that also adds a lot of um, gravity to the story that you're hearing, like especially if it's a complex history, to have it repeated by someone else who saw it um, really does influence my belief that what they're telling me is true. I, I can, can't emphasize enough the, the importance of getting those details and when they're absent, how nervous it makes me. Um, I think one of the pitfalls of history taking that I, I, I see a lot is people who, to, to echo Mary Clyde's point about making the history, is people who come in and say, did the baby fall? Mm -hmm. Like even just small yeah. things that you can introduce um, inadvertently, not, not with any ill intention, but can if you can really stop yourself from taking someone to a certain history and let them take you instead. Um, I think in busy frontline settings, really listening and taking time to listen can be really yeah. hard. So I've, I, I try to, um, and this is another thing I learned from Dr. Leventhal, um, to ask that question about tell me what happened or give me the movie and then really tell myself in my head to shut up, mm -hmm. be quiet, yeah. and listen, and, and just stay silent long. And sometimes it takes a little while for, for the history giver to talk, um, but I do think that giving that space um, can be one of the most meaningful aspects of taking a history because what comes next can really just push you toward being more or less worried about um, whether the child has been harmed or not. I think one of the hardest things to teach and one of the hardest things for people is that when they're taking a history is to then actually listen. Correct. Yeah. One of the most important components is to actually listen and just to have that silence and let the story fold out. And when I'm taking history, uh, in the, ca the cases with bruising or anything else I'm concerned about, I try to really slow myself down. I know the ED is a very busy place. So one thing I try to do is get myself to sit down and then kind of go over things in detail and start with the beginning and try to make like a timeline of events. Uh, is that a good process to kind of go through? Or do you have any other thoughts on that? I I think it is. A, you know, I first I let the story unfold as they would like to tell it, okay. you know, because sometimes parents remember or caregiver remembers the most traumatic part of the story. Yeah. So that's the part they tell you about. And then I will ask them, tell me 
what was happening before that, or sometimes you have to prompt, but I do like to start the story with just, you tell me, what do you remember? And then they, sometimes, like you said, it's like, well, I wasn't in the room, I heard a thunk, and I knew something was wrong, and I heard a thunk and a scream. And so just letting that, and then and then after I have the story, I said, so let me make sure I have this correct, so let's start from the beginning to the end. But sometimes people like to tell the story from the most traumatic part, and then they will go backward or forward. Okay. I would add also that I think sometimes, um, this is another lesson learned, but the people will make stuff up for reasons other than that they've harmed the baby. So, for example, babies do roll off surfaces when they're able to do that, developmentally speaking, and sometimes parents or caregivers really didn't see it happen. And so sometimes you can see people inventing stories not because they did something wrong, but because they're embarrassed, mortified, in fact, that they may not have witnessed it, and they may have been negligent in leaving the child for a little while, but that happens quite often in the world. Um, and kids' developmental abilities can change relatively rapidly. So that baby that you left on the changing table yesterday couldn't roll off. But today, suddenly, she can. And you may have turned your back for a moment and not actually seen all those fall dynamics that, that Mary Clyde is so good at getting people to tell her. And I'm, I try to do the same. You know, how did they land and where were they? But sometimes people don't know, and it's not because they did something wrong. And so opening the door um, with a non-judgmental stance to have people tell you that maybe they didn't see it is another another tack to take. Okay. And one of the challenges that we have is delay of presentation. So whether it's several hours, days, a week, whatever the timeline is, trying to sort out what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what did they do, um, and without having any judgment, uh, can you just kind of speak to delay of presentation? Sure. Um, one of the things that's interesting is we were doing uh, some of our fracture research. Um, we at first kind of were more concrete about that definition of delay and then realized uh, that very, very specific kinds of injuries uh, don't only have a, de- they have a delay in presenting with the sign or the symptom. So they don't show up right away. Like you can have a subtle fracture that seems to be okay and then is actually much more painful the day or two later. And so I yeah. s- always try to interpret the delay in presentation to into the context of the injury? Is it a delay in presenting that you are, are even having evidence to see that there's something wrong? So some things take a while to actually develop signs or symptoms, so you would never want to penalize a family for... Agreed. On the other hand, um, when, when babies are really, really obviously in distress, and, and it wouldn't take a medical professional to know that a baby like has an altered mental status, and when families in that situation delay and do things other than get immediate help, whether come directly to the hospital or call 911, that does cause concern. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we all have memories of cases where people took babies who were in very serious straits, you know, splashed them with water or put ice on them and just things that um, a reasonable person would have recognized that the baby was in very serious or the child was in very serious distress and and sought care right away. Yeah, that's the hard part is... Uh, parsing out the family that is not seeking care because they are much more worried about themselves getting in trouble mm-hmm. rather than having the focus on the child. And sometimes people's words give them away. They look literally, you know, like I will, they were they were just worried that what people would think about them or worried that they were going to get in trouble rather than, uh, uh, you know, totally tuning into that child and actually in the distress. Sometimes the, the child's actually completely unconscious and unresponsive for hours or a day because they're so worried about themselves rather than the child, and that tells you a whole lot. Okay. And it costs the child. It actually is ongoing damage damage occurring to the child. And uh, so it's not just that they should have sought care. Uh, They actually are increasing by that lack of uh, focus on the baby rather than themselves. 
the they're causing even greater harm. And sometimes we'll ask, you know, why was there a delay? And sometimes the reasoning just absolutely doesn't make sense or it actually seems reasonable. You have to kind of at least ask and try to help sort that out. Yes. So let's go on to physical exam. So uh, Dr. Pierce, you came up with the uh, 10-4 FACES acronym. Can you tell us what that is and how did you come up with that? Sure. Um, again, uh, my job in the emergency department, pediatric emergency department, uh, contrasted with my job with helping with the child abuse consults. Okay. I, this was several years ago. I just noticed that there were very specific differences in the physical exam findings, especially the skin findings, bruising characteristics. And I became very interested in that. Um, and I realized early on in my career that, you know, literally, I know it sounds kind of silly, but being beaten up injures you very, very differently than a simple accidental event. So the okay. injuries, uh, the, the, what's causing those injuries in the first place is wildly different. And so if it's different, we should find a way to measure those differences. If you can find huh. an objective way to measure differences, then you can impart that knowledge to yourself and to your colleagues so that we can improve our decision making. So basically it started with the hypothesis that uh, being beaten up will injure you in a characteristically different way than an accidental injury will injure you. And so we started with that. And uh, we worked with uh, our first studies were with uh, nurse practitioners okay. in the intensive care unit. And uh, from there, we actually uh, got pilot data and we used that uh, data to actually get an NIH grant to study this in a much more methodologically rigorous way. And uh, so we ended up finding some key areas that were highly sensitive for differentiating abuse from accident. Okay. And uh, I can go over those regions yeah. if you want. Yeah, that'd so, be great. Uh, so 10 four faces, the first off, the uh, four, let me just say what that stands for. It turns out that uh, with this rule, was uh, it has kind of a double meaning. So the four first stands for children that are under four years of age. So uh, listeners, I mean, I just want to make sure that people understand what we're really uh, talking about and passionately talking about are those very, very young infants and very, very young children. Because if you want to see who's at greatest risk for dying from abuse, it's that first few years of life. I yeah. think, what is it that uh, basically almost 75% of children die from physical abuse before they ever reach their fourth birthday? Wow. So we have to figure out, and that they're too young to really tell us what's happening. So mm -hmm. really, the onus is on us as uh, in the medical community to figure out how to do a better job of having more sensitive uh, testing to actually identify these children before it be becomes catastrophic. Um, so. That's why that, for, so the four first stands for those very high risk years of early life. Okay. And the second meaning of the four is that what we found is that infants that were four months of age and younger, what was a surprise to us is that any bruise anywhere was actually highly predictive of abuse. But, you know, at first yeah. you think, well, that sounds kind of odd, but then you think about what can a two-month-old do? They're not going to incidentally bruise themselves, right. uh, whereas a, a nine-month-old or a 12-month-old can incidentally bruise themselves as they're developmentally, if they're developmentally capable. Um, so the four months and under, any bruise anywhere actually was highly predictive of abuse. There are a couple of other things you can do to help screen out the accident cases. But um, most importantly, the you have to start with a skin exam. Um, the So that's what the four, the double okay. meaning of the four is. The 10 stands not for the number, but it stands for torso, ear, or neck. So TIN stands for torso, ear, neck, and torso is your chest, abdomen, back, and buttocks. Um, and what was a surprise to us when we did this research is that the most predictive region of all was actually the torso. Huh. 
Hmm. People think with abusive head trauma or head injury, you don't go, gosh, is there any bruise on the head? But with these young babies, what really surprised us is that we found bruises to their chest wall. Or we found bruises to their ankle where they'd been yanked up by their ankle and slammed. And so we have to think differently and not think uh, in a concrete kind of way or in an, uh, you know, like literally we made some interesting assumptions that were just simply wrong. Um, so chest, you have to, and that speaks to the, how critical it is that, you know, the ear or the neck, you can see that without undressing yeah. the child. But if you don't put a child in a gown, um, they're not going to, you're going to miss some really important injuries. Uh, like literally, it could be the life difference in life and death for these children. So we have a saying um, that an amazing social worker that I worked with in Louisville, Kentucky, she came up with in four and down, get in a gown. Um, and so if uh, you get popular That's sayings good. going like that, <laughs> so we have uh, like banners up in our ear, four and down, get in the gown. It's hard to talk about getting an adolescent in a gown, yeah. uh, but at least uh, sometimes a rule like this, the 10 poor faces, helps target very specific things to decrease the highest risk population. Um, so and then, so the, like I said, the torso, then the ear is what the E stands for in 10. And uh, that's what started me in this whole uh, passionate mission is I noticed that ear bruises were very common in abuse patients, especially abuse patients that had brain injury or loss of consciousness or fatalities. And they were not common in accidental patients that can occur, but they were not common. And so we actually studied uh, ear bruising specifically. That's what started this whole thing. But turns out ear bruises are highly predictive of abuse. They can occur in accidental events. Of course they can. No one injury is going to be the story in and of itself. It's always in the context of that baby, the story, the patients, the families, what are they saying? Uh, and then the neck, the neck was highly predictive of abuse, which makes sense. Um, unfortunately, if you see a neck bruise, you've also got a very high risk situation because somebody's probably really lost it and is uh, maybe strangling the baby or attacking the baby in a very, uh, um, very uh, dangerous way. Uh, and then you think about the neck as well. Like think about your own self, if you're falling, um, and you're in an, about to have an accident. You don't. Nobody catches themselves by their neck, or rarely would you do right. that. There are sometimes something can happen. So I would never want people to think in a concrete way or reflexive way. But in our study, literally, we looked at. We did over eighteen thousand skin exams just to give you an idea wow. of how uh, extensive this was in very very young children. And in eighteen thousand skin exams, we only found neck bruises in children that had been physically assaulted by their caregiver. <laughs> Um, and then faces is the last part. Uh, so just 10-4 uh, in and of itself already captured 90% of patients accurately. Okay. But we really, because this is a screening tool, and this is not a diagnostic tool, this is a screening tool to help uh, people on the front line to say, you know what, I have these findings, I need to be do my due diligence to make sure that this baby is safe and this makes sense and that I'm not, for example, returning this baby to a maybe a babysitter and the family has no idea somebody's hurt the baby. So nobody deserves that. A child doesn't deserve that. Um, so we wanted to be, do better than 90%. And so it turned out that FACES, it's one of those acronyms that actually stands for what it really is. So FACES represents five regions on the face that are actually on the face. Clever, right? <laughs> Clever. <laughs> so FACES, the F stands for frenulum, and you have those in your mouth. It's what connects your, you know, your lip to your gum, basically, and then yep. under your tongue. So you basically have three of them. <laughs> So the frenum uh, was a predictive area. The A stands for angle of the jaw. Okay. And that goes along with the neck bruises. And so if you think about, you know, like you look at your mandible around the side of your jawline, 
Not your chin. Your chin right. is like uh, every child that's ever fallen has a, a chin bruise, right, or a chin yeah. black. Many of the population has lacerations that have been healed under their chins, you know. So it's not. I'm not talking about the apex of your chin, but the angle of your jaw was highly predictive. And interestingly, when we had angle of the jaw bruising, we had a much higher probability of there being a caregiver in the family that had committed domestic violence acts against a partner before. So you think about domestic violence and how people, maybe an adult attacks another adult. Sometimes they go for the throat or they choke them. Mm -hmm. But a baby's face and head are so much smaller that when that person goes to choke the baby, it actually bruises the jaw. So then that the third region is the cheek. And most importantly, um, the cheek isn't just any part of your cheek. You know, if you actually feel your own face right now, you can feel the the, your cheekbone, the zygoma, right. and that's not what we're talking about. That's actually a vulnerable place, and it does bruise easily. We're talking about the ch- uh, chubby part of your cheek, the the buckle cheek. So if you actually go to your lip and you actually, you know, like literally go parallel to your lip, that is actually your buckle cheek, literally. Okay. Not the inside, but the outside. The, so that's the buckle cheek area, and that was actually predictive as well, highly predictive, and uh, especially when it was bilateral. It was not uncommon for it to be on both sides of your cheek where people had grabbed the child's face to maybe to get them to stop crying or out of anger. Um, then the eyelids, uh, the last two areas, one is the eyelid and the other is the subconjunctiva or the white part of your eye. Yeah. Um, and that is, we divided those um, because uh, eyelid, I wanted to say eyelid instead of black eye because when you say black eye to people, a lot of, a lot of times people even though black eye was also predictive, but you have an image in your mind probably when you yeah. say black eye. You think of somebody that's been in a barroom fight or you see somebody, something really impressive. But what we found in these abuse cases that often it's subtle. So you have to have really your best clinical skills on to just do due diligence, deliberate exams, pay attention to those eyelids. And bruised eyelids were from when people did confess or they were from people grabbing the face and squeezing it really hard. And the same thing was true for the subconjunctival hemorrhages. You have to de- deliberately look or you won't see right. them. Yeah. And so those hemorrhages <clears throat> were from when people had either grabbed the face or actually had strangled the child. Can you get uh, subconjunctival hemorrhages from other causes? Of course, birth trauma can give you those. So, and those fade very quickly, but you would never want to over call this. It always has to be, all of these findings always have to be interpreted in the context of that patient, that story. Does this make sense or does this not make sense? It's a screening tool. The sensitivity was 96% for differentiating abuse wow. from accident. And the specificity was 87%. Okay. Um, so that's pretty exciting because yeah. if you know much about clinic, <clears throat> I mean, it's much better than an EKG uh, determining if you have a, right. or having a heart attack. You know, So yeah. it's a screening test. It's to be interpreted in context and compassionately with the uh, families. And um, it can actually make a huge difference in identifying children that are at great risk for uh, you know, coming back as a fatality if we don't get it right. I'm going to make two points about this. First of all, if if I could put this knowledge into every frontline provider that sees children, I mean, thinking about those powerful numbers, especially for the sensitivity, it's it's very potent stuff. And and I I would emphasize very evidence-based work. So I think some people feel that this is very squishy and how will I know? I think this is... um, potent in its, uh, in, in its scientific rigor, and it's something that I want to emphasize to your frontline listeners. I think the other thing to say about this is that as compelling as these numbers are, in front of you, these findings can look so small and subtle and insignificant. Yeah. So I think we recognize, those of us who do this work, how hard this is, what we're asking frontline providers to do, which is basically react in a very s- serious and strong way to something that in fact looks 
kind of trivial from a medical standpoint. These are none of them injuries that require medical treatment. Right. By themselves, none of them requires the intervention of a medical provider. So I think as as compelling as it is, I don't want to say it's simple. It's not. Um, It's hard. Um, But I do think it's ironclad evidence-based medicine and therefore worth paying attention to. But I, I don't want to be naive that what, that what we're asking about is an easy thing to do. That's a really good point. I, um, another paper that we had worked on were um, commonalities in fatal and near-fatal cases of physical abuse. And this is before we even started doing our bruising research. And one of the things that was really striking to us was that in 64% of cases of fatalities or near-fatalities in very young children, the same age range, um, the, they had a bruise that was diagnosed by a medical provider or the social worker that was actually eva- evaluating the patient and yep. was uh, thought to be inconsequential or in, it was interpreted as being not a big deal. And all of those bruises, in, uh, when we looked back, were all 10-4 faces positive, although we hadn't developed that rule yet. Uh-huh. But um, when we tried to understand, you know, like a kind of like a... Uh, risk analysis of what went wrong with this decision making, uh, inevitably it was that um, people felt like it was such a small injury that it actually wasn't a big deal. And it led me to come up to a mantra that the size of the bruise does not tell you the size of the risk. Okay. So it's absolutely critical to realize and to to interpret this um, in realizing that the size of the bruise itself or the size of the injury has is not has nothing to do with how severe the risk is. Yeah. And that mistake of thinking that it equals is equal is what caused people to make bad decisions. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. The other thing I like about the whole 10-4 faces and the work you're doing is it seems like it's evolving. Like as time goes on, you're looking more and more at each piece of the 10-4 faces. Uh, one example from your lecture yesterday, I noticed that on the ears, now you're looking at the top of the ear or the superior aspect of the ear, that that's actually a higher indica- indication of child abuse versus a lower portion of the ear. Yeah, the opposite. Of the um, What we did was, because I, I kind of started this uh, passion with ear bruises, and so we developed a software that um, is anatomically pixelated so that on any photograph or any image that you have at all, it can be overlaid onto the humogram and then that actually gets coded into uh, a database so that the database can actually query any specific discrete finding. Um, And so what we did was we divided the ear into like its own very, you know, the ear is very complex uh, and it is divided into many, many different subparts. And so we actually anatomically coded it for all those subparts. And so we found that the top of the ear, like literally the helix, that upper uh, quadrant of the ear, uh, children that actually were uh, running and falling and could maybe fall into a table or to a stair uh, rail or something like that, that part bruised pretty easily. Um, So that it is, and many people, when they hear about my bruise uh, research on ear bruises, always have a story to tell me, well, my child had one, my child had one. And so we looked very carefully at that very specific region of the bruise uh, of the ear, and then we compared it to children that actually had been struck or hit uh, from a trauma, from abusive trauma. And we found that the abusive trauma was more likely to have ear bruises that were much deeper to the, more like the recesses part of the ear. Um, like, you know, all of those little folds on, on the inside of the ear, not the, literally the inside of the ear, but all the folds on the different parts of the ear and to the back of the ear as well. That was very unusual and accidental trauma. Um, so those 
those characteristics in and of itself helped differentiate abuse from accident. We had 138 ear bruises in the study. We okay. did 18,000 skin exams. We had found 138 ear bruises. Wow. And uh, in the 138 ear bruises, uh, approximately a little over 20 were accident. The rest were abuse. And those accidents, all of them had that same characteristic and that same exact place. And they actually also had a very clear story of how it happened. The parents, these are very young children. And parents knew either the, how it happened or heard the child scream and knew what happened. So it was interesting uh, to not overcall it, yeah. but to also even let the data uh, help us do a better job for our uh, families on both directions because we, you know, we love families. Okay. And I'm going to assume that those were all ambulatory children. Who they were. Could have That's sustained. a very good point. Yeah. And classic and three-year-old. Classic three-year-old. And I'm going to also assume that they were likely not bilateral injuries in, in not, that setting. None of them were. In fact, all of the injuries that we had were bilateral ears or bilateral buckle cheeks or bilateral jaw. All of them were um, physical assault from abuse injuries. None of them were accidental. Yeah. That bilaterality is a really important point. Big I deal. Think. Very okay. big deal. And so one other question that comes up is skin tones in general. And, you know, some of my uh, team will say, you know, Tom, it's kind of hard for me to sort out whether there's bruising or not. They, they have darker skin tones. Uh, can you speak on what we should be looking for on various types of skin tones? Yes, certainly um, skin tone plays a big role in how easy it is to see the bruise. When you have a very, very pale, pale child, it is certainly easier to see the bruises. Uh, and then the more... Uh, uh, skin tone, that the darker the skin tone, the harder it is to see a bruise all the way to where it actually can be almost impossible to see. Okay. Most children, you can see it. Uh, you have to realize the colors of a bruise change according to how much tone is present. So it may have a more of a red hue or a purple hue. When the skin tone becomes uh, uh, darker, uh, you can actually have a much more of a red uh, tone. And we didn't realize that at the beginning of the research. Uh, we took a lot of photos and followed those photos, and we were able to then develop a uh, library of what bruises looked like across different skin tones to help. And a dermatologist also helped us. Yeah, yeah that, that's very interesting, and that's very helpful, uh, especially when we're trying to evaluate, you know, and get an idea what really we should be looking for. Um, one thing you mentioned yesterday was in regards to complex injuries. And you shouldn't really get complex injuries with simple events. Yes. Can you kind of speak to that? Yeah. Um, you know, if you have uh, one of the things, I think a mistake that is also made, I like to study mistakes because it, mistakes are fixable. And that's why I get yeah. excited about them. Yeah. And I know that sounds kind of weird. But if, if the medical community, if we're making mistakes or the social community, if we're making mistakes in our decision making, and if you can find a pattern to that um, those mistakes, then those are addressable through objective means. And so that's why okay. I like I like mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as far as the complexity of the injury, one of the things that we noticed is that people were thinking that, uh, I heard this over and over again, especially from judges, um, that if it was bad enough to give me a femur, or to give the child a femur fracture, then it was probably bad enough to give them a head injury too. And that's actually opposite huh. of correct thinking. I can understand yeah. why you would think that because you're used to thinking of car crashes where just like disaster, you know, ha right. happens. But car crashes are amazing amount of energy if it's yeah. high velocity or if the child's not properly restrained. Uh, just a shout out to properly restraining your children. It's made all the difference in the world. But um, the what's amazing about uh, the injuries that children get from like the regular life falls is that the in general a fall is not a terribly complex event and it only has a limited amount of energy in it to actually cause an injury so once let's say you fall and let's say your 
uh, leg is broken, that energy is absorbed. It's not left over. It's not like I always think to tell people that falls are not like the lottery of energy. It's not yeah. like an endless <laughs> supply. So when that injury, uh, when you sustain an injury and that leg breaks or you actually have a big bruise that results, it absorbed energy that was available to actually cause uh, the injury from the traumatic event. I don't know if I've said that clearly or not, uh, but... Um, that's very good. So if you have a, multiple injuries, you had to have multiple amounts of energy uh, that were available to actually cause each of those injuries, and each of those injuries have their own injury threshold. So that's why okay. physical abuse and physical assault um, is it injures uniquely because when somebody, like in a caregiver, completely loses it on a baby, like this happens, yeah. you know, when they completely lose it on that two-year-old for maybe they thought they should have been toilet trained by now and they weren't, and they misinterpret why that child has soiled themselves. So when they hit and strike and kick and throw, each of those have a re-delivery of a brand new energy package, so to speak, to cause that next injury. Okay. Those are, being physically assaulted is a very complex injury. Um, by an adult, a baby being assaulted by an adult, very complex, and it can be a multiple high-energy impacts, whereas a simple fall is may have, like especially like a stair fall, may have one big uh, dose of energy, so to speak, to call it in, cause an injury, but it's not going to be multiple doses that are required. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. And this is, this is very interesting. A lot of this uh, information is actually not intuitive. So things that we would commonly, you know, kind of just think of intuitively, you kind of have to put that aside and look at what the evidence is showing. So true. That's why I like research. And when we, when we start, each team, when we start, I give a very strong talk to the team at the beginning. And I say, we are researchers at this moment, and we don't know anything. So every time you have an assumption, if you actually allow those assumptions to drive your research, you're going to get something wrong. Okay. So we start with the, the premise that we actually know nothing, um, and that's... Uh, it's turned yeah. out to be true. <laughs> okay. So one thing that I would think would be intuitive and is clearly not is uh, mom or dad holding the child, falls downstairs. I intuitively, this is just speaking for myself, would think that that adult would be protecting the child, and I would think that the child would have less injuries. But from your talk yesterday, you said that, and if I, if I get this one correct, uh, that they actually have a higher likelihood of an injury. And can you speak to that? Depending on um, how, obviously, that's the beauty of the storytelling in the movie uh, listening part. But uh, if the baby does fall in the front and the parent only stays on the parent, then uh, they probably are protected by that. But unfortunately, um, when the parent falls with the baby and on the baby, that is a dramatic increase in amount of available uh, energy, so to speak, yes. or the, the load is much, much greater because the weight of that adult goes into the equation. Okay. And so you suddenly have uh, the bioengineers tell me that when an adult falls with the baby and on the baby, it was a similar available amount of energy to the equivalent to falling out of a second story window. So you have to think about that injury potential very, very differently. It's always an injury potential though, because the in order to get the injury, the load had to actually reach that very specific area of the body and then it had to damage it. But if it didn't touch that area, kind of like if the child's cradled in the front, then it was an injury potential, but it didn't actually cause the cause the injury. So it's all about okay. that excellent history taking. But if the adult falls on that baby, that's yeah. a whole different story. Okay, so it's kind of back to what we we're talking about before, that careful history 
going over and asking them to kind of give you a movie idea about exactly what happened. And now for me, I'm going to be thinking much more about biomechanics than I did before. Well, and I would just echo that with the history taking, what I was thinking as you were speaking about this is is that it, it, it gets back to how detailed a history that a, 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 care, a caregiver can offer in this setting. Because when parents or caregivers do fall holding children, they can tell you a lot about what happened. They mm-hmm. may not know exactly where things hit, but right. th- you know these are parents that come in and, and they're showing you with their arms and they're frequently emotional about it at the same time because they feel pretty terrible. Um, but that there's a quality of, of history giving in this setting um, that's very rich. And it is a big event, like to fall on the stairs carrying a baby. Or, um, you know, I, I had a case last year of a, of a a dad who slipped on some wet grass on a hill holding a baby and had a fracture. And these caregivers can give you lots of information about what happened because it was a big event. Uh, And I I would just go back to that part of where we started and saying, like, being able to listen for that and hear it and the quality of those stories really does help to to increase the likelihood that they're real. Okay. Yep. Thank you. So if we can kind of jump ahead and just kind of talk about uh, some cognitive errors uh, in medical decision-making. Can you speak to that, Dr. Pierce? Sure. Um, We already talked about, you know, one, and that's actually coming at the injury from your own assumptions. Um, And that's, it's hard not to do that. And uh, people come, uh, Mm. we bring our own life experiences to what we're seeing. Uh, and one of the most dangerous things I think that we can do is to make an assumption or to interpret those injuries that that baby has from your own perspective of what you were would would or would not do. Okay. And I hear people say all the time, there's no way that this person hurt that baby. There's just nobody could do that. And we, I agree, it's, it's not imaginable. And so I tell people when I'm teaching, I say, it isn't imaginable, so don't try. There's something that's okay. different about this person that can actually stomp a baby. Something's gone wrong. It's not your life experience. It's so don't interpret it from your life experience because and I think we do that because it is it can be so ugly that somehow we need to preserve our own societal thoughts. And so we would prefer to think that maybe it was a wonderful person that just snapped for a moment. But when you really look at these children in their lives, and Mandy, I don't know if you'll agree or not, but many times when we look at these children and we look at what's happened, like the fabric of their lives, um, there were so many predictors and there's so many bad things that were happening that led up to this. But we sterilize it in our own minds clinically because we would much rather believe that it was just a, a flash pan moment rather than of the tragedy that's actually really happened to this child. So I say to to myself when I'm seeing patients and to people when I'm teaching is that you can't interpret what has happened through your own lens. You have to take your glasses off and just be the objective data finder. Uh, And then if it makes sense, great. And if it doesn't make sense, you can't say, well, I'm going to give the family the benefit of the doubt. Giving the family the benefit of the doubt is one of the most common things that we found when uh, physicians and uh, medical providers made wrong decisions and put children back into home. Okay, great. Thank you. And how about, um, can you just speak to like uh, bias? And what are some of your thoughts on us having various bias with seeing patients with injuries? Yeah. Um, I'll, uh, one of the most common biases that I run into when even people come up to me after I've given a talk, and they will, this is a bias that people have that it is true in our society, is that there's assumption that poor people are more likely to abuse children, and all uh, African-American people are more likely to abuse children. This is what people ask me, and uh, this is just not true. 
Um, it's poverty. This is, uh, Andy, I'll be interested if you agree with me or not, but um, what, I've, what I've come to believe is that um, poverty doesn't cause people to abuse children. Being somebody that actually is impulse, has impulse control and in, resolves your conflicts with some type of violence makes it harder for you to have a job. So there's okay. a whole cadre of people that actually have a lot of violence in their family. So they resolve conflict with violence or just violence uh, is very dangerous for children. And so if you're violent, you're also are less likely to have a higher income. And so poverty doesn't cause people to abuse children. That doesn't make sense to me. They're so The world is full of impoverished people that passionately love their children. Um, and I think that uh, there is a strong narrative out there that we have to figure out how to take this back because... Uh, equating those things uh, is uh, very damaging for communities, our African-American community. It's damaging for p impoverished community, and it makes people uh, less empathetic. And um, I think that people that hurt their children uh, need help. And to think that it is uh, race-specific or um, income-specific is just ludicrous. Great. Yeah, Thank I you. wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I think that, that poverty by itself is a stressor. And one of the ways to approach thinking about families is the layers of, of stress and risk that they face. Certainly worth repeating that poverty is very commonplace, sadly, in our communities, and it does not equate with being an abusive or neglectful parent yes. by any stretch. But I do think that families get pressed by um, various stressors, one of which can be living in, in a poor community. And it's worth recognizing the hardships that families are going through and thinking about it through the lens of just a very rigorous uh, accounting of what stresses a family is under. Right. But That's I do not believe that poverty turns people violent who don't have those predispositions necessarily. And the, the, pre, the, you know, the precursors of violence are, are multiple in our society, and many children are raised in violent homes and exposed to violence in their communities. Um, but to say poverty or race equates abuse is, is naive and incorrect. Yeah, okay. and, and damaging because what happens is, is that um, that kind of bias thinking, then it makes people more likely to diagnose in a certain um, demographic or a certain uh, income level. So you're more likely to have it on your differential, so you're more likely to identify it. Yeah. Um, and so that's why bias thinking can actually lead to uh, incorrect conclusion. Yeah. In both directions. In both and directions. our literature yeah. supports that it, it happens in both directions, that right. there's overcalling in certain subgroups of our population and over-investigation and under-recognition in, in other populations, namely white families, um, and in, and often in intact families um, where the both parents are living in the same home. So we know that there's evidence for bias uh, towards families that are of color and also who are uh, living uh, without both parents in the home. Right. And so it 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 is true. And so um, rather than wishing it weren't, we have to. That's why I love objective tools because objective yeah. tools don't see. Uh, the race. They're not looking at poverty. Their objective tools to help us make better decisions about injury, plausibility or not, are based on the facts of the history and the facts of the injuries. And okay. uh, that's why I get pretty excited because our objective tools uh, took out, uh, erased some of that disparity in decision making that was made. And so I get pretty excited about that. So yeah, do no, I. And, that, yeah. and those tools that Mary Clyde is, is actively developing allow me as a consultant um, to give better advice sometimes or give good advice. Um, I'm not necessarily in the front line. So when one of you who is calls me and tells me about an injury, 
I'm not looking at the family with you. And, and in some ways, that's really useful as a consultant, you know, not yeah. to see someone who looks the way you thought a child abuser would look and the injury itself is not worrisome. Or, you know, I'm fond of saying like the broad shouldered, um, you know, military dad and the blue eyed nurse wife and, you know, people that you just can't imagine would ever <laughs> abuse their children. And, and yet there's a very worrisome injury that I've identified as worrisome by virtue of the objective tools that Mary Claude is developing, um, it allows me to help you, to guide you to the right decision sometimes. So I think that sometimes as consultants, being well-versed in these things, we can we can help you over those biases. Um, but pretending that they're not there is definitely a pitfall to be avoided. Yeah, thank you. Those are all great points. Uh, Dr. Pierce, can you give us like three take-home points that uh, we can give our, provi- our providers that are listening and other folks out there that are listening, just three like clear take-home points from uh, all the things we discussed today? Um, well, certainly one would be that if you don't examine the skin, you'll never find injuries. Okay. Um, and so I know it sounds uh, kind of silly, but I always tell the residents, for example, when I'm teaching them, if your patient has skin, you need to examine it. And so it's just a rule of thumb. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Um, and they actually does, and I, I have found that families, you know, I love taking care of families, you know, and so I have never had a family complain if I were being careful or thorough yeah. uh, in any circumstance. And so I just, like when I'm examining the chest or for uh, lung fields, making sure that they're clear, or if I think of it, if I worry they're in respiratory stress, I'm also visually examining the chest to make sure that they're breathing normally, but I'm also yes. taking into account what is on their skin. Yeah. And uh, I've not only diagnosed uh, bruising, but I've also diagnosed other conditions that were important to not miss. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, it's a, a, va- a great value to just be careful with your patients. And it doesn't even add to your exam time if you just are do- doing your due diligence and multitasking at the same time. Um, so I think that that would be my first recommendation, that you actually have to uh, examine. Uh, the second one would be to, um, when you're taking a history, actually take it and let like literally you're the taker you're not the giver so listen ask a question and then actually listen because parents I find that sometimes when they've been in a trauma with their child like they fell with the child or they saw the child it's traumatic for them and they almost uh, it almost helps them to actually get the story off their chest they're worried Um, and uh, the third thing I would say is that uh, uh, most importantly it uh, cost us absolutely nothing to be compassionate and kind. And if somebody has hurt their child, we should be taking care of them too. Uh, we should care. We we care about people. We care about families. We care about if you've if somebody has hurt their child or they feel like they're about to hurt their child. This is we should be embracing these families and helping these families. Um, and the. So that's, you know, one of the things that I'm asked often, are you angry? And at the beginning of my career, I was. Okay. Uh, but it definitely dissipated after you meet families and you hear what they've gone through and you hear what is happening. That anger quickly gets displaced with just empathy and caring for people that are distressed. All right. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you both. This has been very helpful and very engaging. Uh, and I'm looking forward to your future work and these, all this uh, work that you're doing on child abuse and bruising. I appreciate it. Thank you both.